This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Derek Dorch of the Diversa Group, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Now your host, Derek T. Dorch. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. George on Federal News Network. We're glad you joined us. Thank you for coming by the show. Today, we're going to be talking about a number of different issues with one of our favorite guests, John Harper from National Defense Magazine. We're going to be catching up on a couple of things that he has written about that is very, very interesting. Everything from coronavirus to countering China. John, welcome to Fed Access. Thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me on the show again, Derek. Always a pleasure. Hey, John, you know, um, you know, we've been dealing with the COVID-19 situation. Um, and, and of course, there's a number of different uh, government elements, right? CDC and, and, and HHS and everybody else. But I was interested to see uh, that the Army is also working in on helping with this kind of situation. Tell us a little bit more about what's going on with DOD and how the Army is really kind of working to fight the COVID-19 situation. Absolutely. Um, You know, when people think of the army at war, you know, they envision tanks or helicopters or, uh, you know, infantry on far-flung battlefields. But, uh, you know, army researchers right now are kind of in the trenches here at home, if you will, uh, trying to battle COVID. Um, And that includes, uh, you know, folks at the, you know, Walter Reed uh, Army uh, Infectious uh, Disease Research Center um, and other researchers, you know, who are working on uh, therapeutics and uh, uh, diagnostic tools and also uh, potentially a vaccine. You know, when, when we think about this whole situation right here, I know you mentioned that they may be working closely with some of the private uh, sector companies who are also uh, trying to work on producing a vaccine. Uh, what's going to be, is, is there going to be some kind of collaboration between the Army scientists? Are they going to be uh, maybe embedded in some of these corporations or are they sharing information with each other? How is that working right now? Absolutely. You know, they're kind of pursuing um, a, a dual track in a sense. Um, they're, uh, you know, looking to assist uh, some of the private sector companies uh, that are working on vaccines, you know, offering their uh, expertise, uh, you know, their uh, facilities, uh, some, you know, logistical assistance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, help uh, with uh, clinical trials. Um, and at the same time, they've developed uh, their own uh, promising vaccine candidates um, internally that you know they're hoping to push forward this fall and uh that one uh, in a sense um could be a little more far-reaching than uh, some of the ones that are being developed uh, in the commercial sector which are specifically focused kind of just on dealing with COVID-19 uh the army's leading candidate is called uh spike ferritin nanoparticle I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly I'm not a a medical expert, <laughs> um, SPFN is the acronym, sure. and uh, it's kind of unique in that uh, Army scientists think that it has the potential to protect not just against COVID-19, but future coronaviruses that may emerge in, in the coming year, and that's a very big concern. Obviously, you know, COVID-19 is a big focus right mm-hmm. now, but it, there are fears that 
you know, different uh, variants of coronaviruses could emerge. Um, and obviously, you know, given all the the human and economic uh, devastation that COVID-19 has caused, you know, no one wants to see a repeat of that. Exactly. So this, uh, this army vaccine could potentially, uh, you know, deal with a, a variety of different uh, viruses. You know, when I'm thinking about kind of the dynamics of Army, and, and we've heard, you know, how the Navy has been impacted by COVID-19, but we have not heard about as much uh, maybe the Army, the Marine Corps, whatever the case is. Has there been uh, uh, some significant impacts, you know, in terms of either Army bases or, uh, you know, Army uh, facilities or whatever the case is? Uh, have they been impacted by COVID-19 just as much as the Navy has been, or they've kind of been able to stabilize things in other branches? Do you know? Um, yeah, all, all of the branches um, have been impacted. Uh, you know, some of the Navy cases have been a little bit more high profile, particularly mm -hmm. the situation with the uh, aircraft carrier uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, a few months ago. Uh, but it certainly impacted training across the services. You know, they have to, uh, or at least they're trying to adhere to uh, health and safety protocols, you know, social distancing. Uh, that type of thing. Um, and, you know, some of the, the testing of, uh, of equipment, mm -hmm. uh, you know, has been impacted by that. Um, and so it is far reaching. And of course, you know, service members, uh, you know, not just Navy folks, uh, but uh, other uh, troops and DOD civilians have been, uh, you know, infected. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been travel restrictions, um, you know, uh, restrictions and access to bases. So this has been far reaching, uh, certainly. You know, when we think about the scenario, can you mentioned kind of about the DOD industry, right? And so we think about, of course, it's impacted our military branches, but uh, it seems as if the Pentagon has been very, very concerned about the impact on um, a number of the DOD contractors. Um, what has been the impact on the DOD contractors and what is the Pentagon doing about that? Well, there's certainly been a lot of concern um, about the, uh, the defense industrial base and the Pentagon's taken a number of steps to try to address that. You know, some of the key concerns have been uh, especially focused on some of the lower tier suppliers, you know, companies that might provide, uh, you know, one part uh, for a critical weapon system, but that particular part, you know, is uh, a key element uh, of the overall system. So they're uh, worried that some of those companies you know, might go out of business or might have to shut down for a while uh, because of COVID, you know, and there might be other related issues. And, um, you know, during sort of the, the height of the crisis, at least from sort of an industrial base standpoint, uh, I think there were over 600 companies that, uh, or at least among the ones that DOD has been tracking that had to temporarily close. Um, and it's, it's particularly you know, an issue for smaller contractors, you know, if you've got a, a 10 person shop and one mm -hmm. person gets infected, you, you know, um, or you, that, that can you be know. devastating for a small business right there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, as of, uh, you know, a, a couple weeks ago, um, I think, you know, among those 600 plus companies that had temporarily shut down, I think now that number has decreased to about 30. So they're certainly seeing some improvements there, but they're still very concerned. And 
they've taken a number of steps uh, early on in the crisis. Uh, they, the federal government declared the defense industry to be uh, a critical infrastructure, which, uh, you know, enabled workers to, you know, show up uh, to their places of business, uh, you know, early on, uh, you know, when a lot of uh, governors and, and mayors and other folks were implementing stay at home orders, you know, there was a concern that uh, defense workers wouldn't be allowed to come in. Um, but that law gave them permission, essentially, uh, to do that. They've also been accelerating uh, progress payments to contractors, um, you know, and uh, rate increasing the percentage of that uh, for the work that they've been doing. They've been accelerating contract awards to try to get money to companies faster. Um, and they've also been using something called uh, Defense Production Act. Title III authorities, um, you know, the Defense Production Act, the, you know, in the news, a lot of the focus has been on Title I authorities, which, you know, force companies in the private sector to make medical supplies, for example, in this crisis, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and prioritize what the federal government wants. But Title III authorities enable the Pentagon to kind of pump money into critical sectors of the industrial base to keep companies afloat and uh, you know to keep things moving and sort of shore up critical nodes in the supply chain so you know among all those efforts billions of dollars have uh, have gone into that you know i'm wondering um you know we talked about the priority in terms of testing um is dod in terms of kind of the getting the covid test and we you know we've heard about the 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 either the testing concerns in terms of how long it's taking to get the results um in the military branches or even in the defense industrial base? Are they getting priority testing in order to make sure that uh, we don't have a, or we don't suffer a significant setbacks in terms of the defense industry or our military you know, uh, 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 preparedness? Uh, well, certainly, uh, you know, testing um, has been a concern. Um, obviously, you know, if a service member or a DOD civilian, you know, comes down, uh, with the virus, uh, you know, with COVID-19, you know, they want those folks to be isolated. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if they're having um, quite, you know, the magnitude of issues that we've seen in the civilian sector. Um, I know, especially recently, uh, there seems to uh, be uh, more of a lag than there has been. Uh, but certainly, you know, the, the Pentagon, just like, uh, you know, other companies, uh, other agencies, uh, they certainly want their folks to get tested. Right, without question, without question. Do you think that right now, in terms of what's going on, and, and, and you know, we talk about the, the areas, and I don't know if you've heard anything on, on this, and so I'm asking, um, is there anything in the Pentagon that's kind of like a COVID-19 task force where they're looking at this strategically long-term, or uh, what are you hearing about that in terms of the Pentagon or the DOD uh, industrial base? Are they looking at this kind of situation uh, uh, more as a long-term, and how do we deal with this in the future if this thing continues to go on to 2021? or what's being looked at strategically as, as, as you know, as we're, we're really not out of the, out of the woodwork yet in terms of COVID-19. So I'm wondering who, you know, who was talking about this strategically? Right. They did uh, set up, um, uh, you know, a task force to try to coordinate 
uh, and not just among DOD, but to try to coordinate the federal response, um, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, acquisitions mm -hmm. and the, the various services, uh, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force um, have their own teams of people tracking the industrial base very, very closely um, to try to, you know, keep tabs on all the programs that see, you know, where, uh, you know, potential problems might pop up, uh, see what issues companies are having right now, you know, whether there are going to be program delays. Um, but, you know, they're also looking, um, you know, at sort of the longer term picture. Um, there's this thing called Operation Warp Speed, um, that it's a multi-agency effort, um, and the uh, the Army uh, medical research efforts that I mentioned earlier are, uh, you know, are part of this, um, and the aim is to have hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine ready by January. Of course, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen, so, right. um, you know, and we're certainly not out of the woods yet. So um, acquisition officials, uh, you know, commanders, uh, it, you know, are looking at, you know, what measures they can put in place to try to keep things running as smoothly as possible, try to protect troops, uh, protect uh, defense industry workers, DOD civilians. Uh, you know, so while people are, you know, certainly hoping and some folks are optimistic that next year there will be a vaccine you know, this is uh, potentially a longer term issue. And certainly, you know, uh, as people look at the, the possibility of future coronaviruses, you know, they're trying to take lessons learned from this crisis and, uh, you know, be ready to apply them in the future. Right, right, without question. You know, going back to uh, the Army and, and just maybe the DOD components who are working on uh, helping out with, you know, the, uh, developing a vaccine, um, I, I noticed that uh, the Army and maybe other elements, they were working on Ebola, they were working on SARS, they were working on a number of other uh, uh, previous uh, uh, SARS or previous diseases uh, that were very, very critical. Um, are they also thinking about this in terms of the, the, the nature of uh, bio-warfare and being concerned about the not the dynamics of uh, uh, just in case somebody does weaponize like an Ebola or a COVID-19 are the researchers are also involved in the fight because of that scenario as well? Um, Army researchers you know for a long time have uh, you know not only focused on sort of you know uh, naturally occurring uh, diseases, if you want to call it that, such as, you know, uh, Ebola, uh, Zika, as you noted, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's uh, COVID-19 is also believed to be, you know, not, you know, or most folks don't necessarily think it was a, you know, a manufactured bioweapon or anything sure. like that. Uh, but the Defense Department also has programs that are focused on protecting troops from uh, biological weapons. Um, and, you know, there's concern, at least in some circles, that, um, you know, if, a, you know, foreign adversary, whether that's a, you know, another nation state or a, a terrorist group, you know, uh, you know, having seen the devastation that COVID-19 has caused, you know, there's a fear uh, among some folks that, you know, the, they could, there could potentially be, you know, equally or even, you know, 
uh, a more devastating uh, attack uh, at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't think anyone's putting uh, odds on that right now, but that's certainly, you know, a mission set that um, the defense department is involved with. So, uh, you know, as they pursue this research, um, you know, I think that's certainly something that's uh, on the radar, not necessarily, you know, a worry that someone's going to weaponize COVID-19 specifically, right. but just, you know, some sort of future. What does the future uh, hold? Yeah, I mean, right. yeah, without question, without question. We're talking to John Harper. He is, uh, um, John, what are you? Are you, are you, are you running, you're managing editor. Uh, at managing editor, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're running things over there. I just want to make sure you got the title. Um, but he's managing editor at National Defense Magazine. You can find them at nationaldefensemagazine.org. We're talking about a number of the different issues. July has been a busy month. And, I mean, it's been a busy time, unique, crazy time. But there's a lot going on in the defense industry. We're catching up with what's going on with him right now, who's covering this on a daily basis. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. George from Federal News Network. If you're just joining us, we've been having an interesting conversation about what's going on in the defense industry right now. There's been so many different things that have been happening. Of course, COVID-19 and the coronavirus is impacting the defense industry. Of course, there's a number of other things that are still going on as the work of defense still continues. Uh, right now, they're looking at a number of different situations, whether it be countering China, all the way to flying cars. But one issue right now also has been kind of discussed us in terms of the defense industry is about loosening the weapon restrictions or the export restrictions in terms of upcoming months in which weapon sales can happen. Hey, John, you know, we're talking to John. I didn't mention this. We're talking to John Harper from National Defense Magazine. He's a managing editor. John, talk to us about the, the scenario about the global defense market as it relates to uh, the loosening of these export restrictions. And which is this a dynamic of trying to put more weapons into other countries' hands or, or what's going on? Absolutely. Um, increasing. Uh, you know, U.S.-made uh, weapons uh, exports has been uh, a, a big goal of the Trump administration um, from, uh, you know, an economic standpoint and from a national security standpoint in terms of selling uh, weapons and other defense systems uh, to allies and partners. And, um, you know, they've uh, taken some steps early uh, in the administration, particularly when, you know, when it came to uh, trying to, you know, relax some rules surrounding uh, drones, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Under Secretary of Defense uh, for Acquisition and Sustainment, Ellen Lord, who's kind of considered the, you know, the Pentagon's uh, top weapons buyer, and she also, you know, uh, speaks with her counterparts in other countries about uh, them buying U.S. defense equipment. She recently... Uh, disclosed that, um, you know, she's in talks with some of her uh, colleagues at other U.S. government agencies about uh, potentially loosening some of the restrictions um, on defense technologies to enable even more uh, exports. She's thinking that might happen uh, in the next six months or so. Um, She uh, didn't provide a lot of details in terms of you know, which specific types of technologies 
uh, you know, might see additional exports or uh, a loosening of, uh, of restrictions. But that's certainly going to be something that uh, people in the defense industry are going to be watching closely. International allies sure. uh, and partners are going to be watching closely to see what, you know, they might be able to sell and, and buy respectively. Well, you know, this, this leads a question in terms of, I mean, of course, we've already had some countries who are already regular buyers of our products, but there has been a concern about people going to Russia and China because we wouldn't sell to them. Is this going to open up a whole new group of countries who at first we didn't sell to for either uh, humanitarian or human right issues or a number of other issues? Are we beginning to change the, the, some of the restrictions on some of these countries that, and, and maybe begin to loosen uh, 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 what we look at as concerns? Or where are we going with this? Um, the Defense Department and the, you know, the interagency uh, process that kind of, you know, manages these exports, that includes the uh, State Department, uh, Department of Commerce, um, you know, there will still be rules uh, in place, um, you know, human rights considerations, um, uh, you know, end user restrictions, which basically means, um, or, you know, part of that, you know, entails trying to ensure that companies that the U.S. sells equipment to don't turn around and, and sell or give that equipment to uh, someone that the U.S. doesn't really want to see uh, having that in their hands. Um, so it's, uh, you know, uh, they're not expected to completely jettison, uh, you know, any th these rules or uh, concerns, but, um you know, I do think, you know, maybe the, uh, the balance might shift a little bit um, in favor of green lighting some of these exports. Um, and even countries that do buy a lot of U.S. Uh, equipment, for example, you know, uh, missile defense systems are a big export item. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even some of these big customers don't always get to buy uh, everything that they might want. Um, and so they turn to other countries that also export their weapon systems, such as Russia and China, which, uh, you know, historically don't have as many qualms about, you know, human rights issues and mm -hmm. that uh, want to buy their equipment, uh, perhaps not as strict, uh, you know, end user requirements. Um, and so, you know, uh, Under Secretary Lord and and uh, you know other administration officials are concerned that U.S. Uh, defense companies are are losing out on sales opportunities in some of these cases. Um, so you know, as I noted, we uh, don't necessarily have a lot of specifics yet um, okay. in terms of what what rules will be loosened or what you know technologies might become more available but that's certainly something that a lot of people uh not just here in washington but uh, and uh you know spread out around the country uh but also uh overseas uh weapons buyers are, are gonna have on their radar and be looking out for you know this 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 makes me wonder is this more of a, a trump administration scenario who's very very focused on course on business and maybe sales 
um, versus uh, a scenario that if a new administration comes into um, comes into the fold after the after the election, do you think this will still hold, or will is this more of a kind of a push of this administration to start you know getting more weapons out into other countries to increase sales? for the DOD industrial base, um, you know, it, you know, cause we haven't done this before. Is, is this a kind of a different mindset of, of this administration or what's your thoughts? Uh, certainly the Trump administration has been um, a little more aggressive than some previous administrations in terms of, you know, trying to make it easier, uh, you know, in a number of ways for foreign countries to buy us equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, some, some observers, uh, you know, see them as, you know, perhaps not being as concerned um, about, you know, human rights issues, uh, you know, in some countries. So it will be interesting to see, you know, if there is um, a, a Biden administration coming into office next year, how they might approach things. Uh, it may be similar to the Obama administration, which, um was maybe, you know, I mean, certainly they weren't, you know, opposed to arms sales, you know, mm-hmm. philosophically, but, uh, you know, things might be tightened up a little bit under a, a Democratic administration, but that certainly sure. uh, remains to be seen. I, I know, I don't know if you know, um, and, I'm, and I'm asking, um, you know, with everything that's going on with kind of police reform and everything else, are we hearing any kind of changes? So this kind of goes to kind of defense sales or, or the giveaway of certain kind of military equipment. Are we hearing any kind of changes in terms of um, uh, that program that used to give military equipment to police agencies? Or is that still going on as, as usual? Um, some of that, um, is still going on. The defense department has, um, you know, a, a program where they transfer what they consider, you know, excess defense articles, uh, to law enforcement agencies. It's Mm -hmm. basically stuff that they feel like they don't need and that law enforcement agencies would like to have, uh, you know, this has been, uh, controversial for, um, a number of years. you know, and in various incidents, you know, we've seen on the news, uh, you know, police departments, uh, pretty heavily armed, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. clad in what, you know, appears to be almost, you know, military tactical equipment, uh, you know, the selling of, uh, you know, uh, MRAPs, for example, which are, you know, mine resistant, uh, ambush protected vehicles that were designed Mm -hmm. for overseas conflicts, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but, you know, they're large vehicles that, you know, would be, you know, certainly intimidating, I think, for civilians here in the U.S., you know, if they see one of those rolling by. Sure. So there's certainly been criticism of that, um, especially, you know, in uh, progressive or uh, democratic circles. Um, and, you know, there has been a push to, uh, you know, limit some of these transfers, but, um, you know, I don't think that's going to totally end uh, anytime soon, but it's it's certainly, you know, a controversy that I think mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Is, 
will persist. And I know that um, uh, uh, what we're hearing is that Esper is is maybe uh, a little bit of pushing back on uh, some of the federal agent uh, agents out there in, in Portland and other places who have been basically using uh, uh, military uh, uniforms uh, that 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 came out of the, uh, the DOD sector, and so people are getting confused on you know whether these are actual military people or actual federal agents. Um, are you hearing anything about that kind of dynamic about maybe a little bit of pushback to say, listen? We don't want federal agents using uh, military uh, uh, BDUs or camouflage uh, uh, uniforms and this, that, and the other that I use overseas in war fighting on U.S. soil. Well, you know, uh, certainly there is concern. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, not just in the Defense Department, but, you know, across the country, you know, traditionally, uh, police uh, officers have, and other law enforcement folks have had, um, you know, uh, clearly differentiated uniforms. Um, you know, when you see the National Guard, they're, you know, more, um, you know, clad in uh, camo or, um, you know, or they're sort of, you know, more distinctive military uniforms. Um, and I do certainly think there's a concern at DOD that, the military not, especially the active duty military, not be perceived as, uh, you know, trying to repress citizens or quashing, you know, their rights to freedom of speech or freedom of assembly. Um, it, that certainly, you know, created kind of a crisis situation um, in Washington, uh, you know, at, uh, you know, all, all the protests sure, um, sure, surrounding sure. George Floyd's uh, uh, killing. Um, and, and I think there's a, a concern that, you know, the uh, in the Defense Department, you know, they don't want the military's reputation to be sullied or have them associated, you know, with, uh, you know, kind of uh, tactics that are you know, perceived as uh, repressive. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, I mean, there was, you know, controversy with, with the National Guard and, uh, you know, how they've been involved in, in dealing with some of the protests. But, um, you know, with police or, or other federal law enforcement agencies, uh, you know, appearing in military gear, I, I think that does unsettle um, a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, as I said, I mean, you know, there's kind of a reason that, uh, police departments generally have their own uniforms, um, and, and you know, and the military has their own. Right, a distinction. Yeah, it, it creates a distinction between the two, and 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 so people to know that this is uh, more of a public safety situation versus a war fighting situation, uh, kind of going forward. And and so I think the military, of course, uh, has to be concerned about you know how the perception of this is going to play long term. Right. And even with military uniforms, you know, I mean, they, uh, you know, troops display their, uh, their name, mm -hmm. um, you know, they've got other, you know, insignia kind of, you know, identifying who they are. And I think a, a lot of the concern in Portland and, you know, potentially other places is that, um, you, you know, uh, officials are operating in, you know, in more of an unmarked uh, right. Right. Uh, uh, fashion. So you they're don't know, not you don't know who's who. Yeah, you don't know who's yeah. who. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're not necessarily wearing like, you know, actual uniforms that 
you know, military troops wear. It's kind of a perception that it's, it appears almost like, you know, military sure. uh, tactical gear. And I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, an, an expert on uh, domestic law enforcement. So I don't want to, you know, suggest that, um, you know, uh, that, that, you know, there's, you know, never a, a situation where, you know, police departments use, you know, equipment that might traditionally be more associated with, Mm-hmm. Uh, the military, mm-hmm. but it, just from a perception standpoint, um, you know, obviously, uh, this has uh, raised a lot of concern uh, in some circles. And without question, yeah, without question, we're talking to John Harper. He's the managing editor at National Defense Magazine. Has his pulse on what's going on in the defense industry right now. We're talking about a number of different issues, everything from COVID nineteen uh, to the selling of weapons to possibly lowering restrictions in terms of the country that we begin selling weapons to. Uh, we're going to talk about China next in terms of what's going on. China has been in the news a lot in terms of uh, being a big concern for us on a number of different levels, on national treaty levels, on trade levels, and a number of different areas. We're going to talk about what the U.S. and what the Pentagon is doing in order to counter China and, and everything that's going on from there. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortz on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorsch from the Federal News Network. If you're just joining us, we've been having a great conversation about a number of different things that are going on in the defense industry, really kind of catching up about what's happening with COVID-19 in defense, also what's happening with the internal dynamics of the Pentagon, whether it be weapon sales, uh, whether it be countering China, whether it be flying cars. We're talking about all these issues today on Fed Access. We have one of our favorite guests, John Harper. He's from National Defense Magazine, the managing editor there. And he's keeping us abreast about what's been happening, uh, not only in the month of July, but in, in, in 2020 with the uh, defense industry. John, what's going on when it comes to this China scenario? I mean, of course, uh, China has always been a, a big area of concern, um, but there's a dynamic right now about kind of a, 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 a new counter China fund. Uh, what is this about right now? And, and what, is the, what is the concern and what is this fund supposed to do? Well, just to, you know, kind of put that into a broader context, um, a couple years ago, uh, the Pentagon unveiled a new national defense strategy, which uh, kind of pivoted away uh, from a focus on counterinsurgency and counterterrorism and and, uh, sort of reframed the, uh, the strategy as, you know, focused on great power competitors, which they identified as China, um, as well as Russia. Although China, you know, is certainly, uh, especially over the long term, I think considered a a bigger potential threat uh, to the U.S. and the U.S. military. Um, And so, you know, a number of new um, uh, weapons development efforts um, and, and other technology development efforts are kind of geared at uh, countering or, or deterring China and, you know, in a worst case scenario, uh, you know, preparing for a, you know, a potential war um, on that front. Um, and so there's been a push um, this year uh, on Capitol Hill to create um, what is essentially a counter China fund. It's not called that. Um, you know, the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee uh, version would be uh, known as, you know, an Indo-Pacific uh, deterrence fund. 
the mm -hmm. House Armed Services Committee version. Uh, I think they're calling it uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, Reassurance Initiative. Um, and, you know, they off would provide varying amounts of money um, for equipment or training or assisting allies and partners uh, to, you know, to deter China from taking aggressive action in that region. Um, those bills are still winding their way through Congress, as are the uh, appropriations bills. Um, and so they'll have to go into conference, you know, the House and the Senate and work out their differences and come up with a common bill that both chambers can pass and that President Trump would sign. Um, and uh, most people don't expect that whole process to play out um, until after the November election, just because we're in a political season, you know, you've got a Republican controlled Senate and a Democrat controlled mm -hmm. House. So it remains to be seen, you know, what this fund might end up looking like. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, likely to run into the billions of dollars. And there's bipartisan support for creating this type of fund, you know, that there are some differences among, you know, the details in terms of oh, what weapon systems would need to be bought and, and uh, you know, what the exact dollar amounts would be. But, uh, you know, despite all the partisan bickering here, um, you know, that's something that Republicans and Democrats, um, at least in Washington, seem to be in agreement on just a concern about China, um, the threat it might pose, and uh, the need to, to take steps to deal with that. Um, sure, sure. You know, I mean, there's been a number of situations right now in terms of the concern about China, even to the point where uh, uh, I know there's you know, been discussion about closing some of their uh, embassies or consulates in the United States. Um, do you see this in terms of the conversation, uh, uh, whether it be Indo-Pacific uh, commanders or whatever, are they seeing a scenario that there is a escalation uh, 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 almost a kind of an escalation of force that we need to deter or escalation in terms of China and their strategic uh, uh, moves that we need, that we are at a point now that we have to kind of hurry up and begin uh, a more aggressive deterrence in that area or what's going on? Well, uh, certainly over the past uh, couple decades, um, you know, China has been, uh, you know, progressively modernizing their military and uh, more of a high-tech fighting force. And in recent years, um, there have been a lot of uh, territorial uh, disputes between China and other countries in the region, particularly in the Ch uh, South China Sea. Um, and so, so there's a concern uh, among the U.S. military and, uh, you know, other, um, you know, agencies in Washington uh, and elsewhere, you know, at uh, you know, Indo-Pacific Command um, as well, um, that there could be, uh, you know, an escalation of tensions that, um, you know, uh, intentionally or inadvertently, you know, escalate into a larger conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Pentagon is um, trying to strengthen alliances with existing allies like Japan, uh, for example. Um, and also, you know, strengthening partnerships with uh, countries that they haven't been as close to uh, in the past, such as Vietnam, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, you know, they're, uh, 
you know, the U.S. military is trying to beef up defenses in the region, uh, you know, forward deploy systems, um, you know, uh, space threats have certainly increased in prominence in recent years, you know, with China um, developing more sophisticated anti-satellite weapons. Um, and so that's a concern for the new Space Force um, and, and other uh, elements uh, of the Defense Department. Um, so there is, um, you know, both from a technology perspective, a weapons perspective, a research and development perspective, and, um, you know, just a, a force rotation perspective. Um, th there's certainly a lot more attention uh, being paid to that area in recent years, not just, uh, you know, during the Trump administration, but that, you know, that was a focus sure. of the Obama administration as well. And I, I, I remember, um, uh, uh, even I think I, I was reading one of your articles, uh, there's a big concern, you mentioned technology, but there's a big concern about um, possibly the acquiring of, of Chinese microelectronics that sometimes have maybe a backdoor capability where they're uh, uh, taking information and relaying it back to uh, China uh, that, that are being sold in the United States or other countries. Uh, that seems to be a growing concern as well. Is that the case? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, right now, uh, microelectronics, um, you know, is the number one modernization priority for the Defense Department. They kind of, you know, recently push that to the top of the list. And uh, one reason for that is um, concern about the U.S. reliance on overseas suppliers, particularly China. Uh, you know, there's a concern about, um, you know, faulty parts or, uh, you know, parts that could have, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, malicious um, equipment in them that could undermine the U.S. military. Um, and so there's an effort to kind of, you know, bring some of that production uh, back to the U.S. and bolster the domestic um, you know, U.S. microelectronics, uh, you know, the manufacturing capability here. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also, you know, trying to create a situation where uh, it, they're a little bit more resilient to parts that might be, um, you know, fake or, or corrupted um, in some way. Without question. We're talking to John Harper. He's a managing editor at the National Defense Magazine. You can find him at nationaldefensemagazine.org. We're catching up about what's going on in the defense industry right now. We're going to take a real quick break, and then we'll be right back to talk about flying cars. Um, uh, well, you're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch from Federal News Network. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorsch from Federal News Network. If you just joined us, we've been having a great conversation with John Harper. He's been catching us up with all the different defense industry issues that's going on. He's the managing editor at National Defense Magazine, and he's keeping his pulse about what's going on with the defense industry. One unique thing that I was very, very interested in talking to John about, because he just wrote about this, was flying cars. Uh, John, talk to us about this. This kind of reminds me of the Jetsons. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, I may be aging myself or maybe kind of showing my age, but I grew up in the time period where I was watching the Jetsons and the flying cars and everything else. Uh, how real is this and what's going on with the defense industry and flying cars? Well, the uh, Air Force uh, in particular um, is really interested in this technology um, that, uh, you know, the private sector is, is developing. 
Um, their uh, program that's you know focused on this is called Agility Prime, and they're uh, hoping to acquire you know what some officials refer refer to as uh, flying cars. They're also known as orbs or advanced air mobility or urban air mobility vehicles. Um, but essentially, um, they would be aircraft that would have a, a vertical takeoff and landing capability, um, not quite exactly, you know, in the same way as a helicopter. Um, you know, they might have tilt rotors or uh, thrust vector controls that would enable them to, you know, take off and land more like a helicopter, but fly, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe a little more like uh, an airplane. Um, and they would be, you know, uh, electric or, or hybrid propulsion systems, you know, uh, manned or remotely operated or potentially, you know, totally autonomous systems. Um, and the, uh, the military is hoping for uh, platforms that are, uh, you know, a little quieter, um, smaller, uh, less expensive and easier to pilot than some of the traditional, uh, you know, helicopters or rotary wing platforms. And so um, it'll be interesting to see whether this vision comes to fruition in the coming years. Um, a number of companies are working on prototypes uh, for these types of vehicles. And, um, you know, the Air Force is investing a little bit of money into it, but they're hoping to really tap into uh, commercial R&D mm -hmm. uh, that's going on so they don't have to put in a lot of the upfront cost. Um, they're more interested in helping companies you know, get uh, safety certifications, you know, airworthiness certifications, offering up their test ranges, for example, sure. uh, for companies to use. Um, but the, uh, you know, the Air Force and, and uh, other, you know, military branches, uh, you know, see potential utility in this for a, a variety of things, you know, special operations missions, for example, um, you know, search and rescue, uh, troop transport, uh, you know, logistics operations. Um, at least initially, they're not envisioning, you know, these things being armed with, uh, with weapons, uh, because they're hoping to basically buy these systems, you know, commercial off the shelf, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, systems that might be sold to, you know, uh, everyday Americans, you know, maybe at, at some point in the next few years, you and I will be Writing yeah, fly, and, flying around, right? <laughs> yeah, they're really trying to bolster, uh, you know, or help kind of uh, get a new domestic industry okay around. It's not just about you know uh, pursuing these for for military use. The the Air Force in particular sees this as you know something that could stimulate uh, the, the economy, the country, and everything else, and kind of maybe be kind of a, a a product that America can really begin to export around the world in terms of maybe flying cars or or, or air, like you say, air mobility uh, vehicles or things of that sort. Right, uh, absolutely, and you know the Air Force is hoping to do some you know full scale flight tests by the end of the year of some of these uh, prototypes. And they're hoping to have operational systems by uh, 2023. It's unclear exactly how many they're going to buy. It kind of depends on how well the technology works and what mission sets they use them for. 
but you know other companies you know uber for example that you know they have their uber elevate mm -hmm. uh, initiative and you know they're hoping to have their own fleet of you know flying cars uh, essentially that could uh, take people around cities um, sort of in the same way that you know you and I might order an uber uh, today to to get us around right. uh, you know there's still a lot of hurdles there that technology is still being worked out um, a lot of safety issues especially I mean if you know these things crash and burn not a lot of people are going to want to sign up of course right power lines all kind of stuff yeah I mean there's a whole bunch of stuff that got to be dealt with mm -hmm. right air you know air traffic control uh, you know air traffic management um, safety certifications, you know, if, and if some of these systems are going to be, you know, flying around autonomously without mm -hmm. pilots or drivers, you know, that creates its own uh, issues that need to be worked through. Um, a lot of folks seem to be optimistic about this, um, but, uh, you know, it remains to be seen whether this is rolled out on a large scale in the coming years. But, you know, Uber, for example, is hoping to deploy some of these here in the next few years. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. That would certainly be very interesting if, uh, you know, uh, all the different players are able to pull this off and create what's essentially an entire new mode of transportation. Well, it will be exciting to see uh, the future that we have seen on TV for all these years come to fruition and become real <laughs> and then kind of go from there. John, thank you for uh, uh, being on the show today. Uh, we will definitely be catching up with you in the near future as you're covering all these great issues. We always appreciate you being on Fed Access. Thanks for having me on the show, Derek. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week with a new show. Uh, thank you for listening to Fed Access, and then we're gone. Thank you. You've been listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 1 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Right now, Amazon is offering some amazing extra perks that come with a job offer. If you start a warehouse job, you can get a $1,000 sign-on bonus. That means you start earning a paycheck right away, plus you get extra cash to use before the holidays. Applying is so easy, you don't even need an interview. It's never been so rewarding to start an hourly job that's close to home. So what are you waiting for? To join the team today, visit Amazon.com slash sign-on bonus. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.